A while back, I did a podcast episode on human evolution. It was actually entitled Human Evolution Revised, Timelines in Multiregionalism. And I re-listened to that, and I realized that I, it's not that I want to issue a retraction, but I really need to issue some extensions, because I think the point I was making in that podcast, I really beat around the bush. I was very reserved in not saying what I wanted to say. So I'm going to go start out this episode, this is not related of course, I'm going to start out this episode by making what I was saying very clear, because I, I kind of baited people with the fact that eventually I plan on doing episodes on the existence of prehistoric human civilizations. Okay, that sounds like a fun topic. Uh, we're going to find out that Atlantis and Hyperborea were real, of course. Um, but in order to make my argument clear, I want to make what I was saying in that episode absolutely uh, I don't know, crystal clear. Now, firstly, on that episode, I talked about a lot of papers, all of them moving to the effect that human prehistory is a lot longer than people think. When I was a kid, the idea used to be humans have existed for 40,000 years. Now, that still is actually a pretty long time. Okay, think of it this way. Uh, of written history, we maybe have information about some things going back 5,000 years. Okay, that's only one-eighth of human prehistory by that rendering. But we don't even know that much about 5,000 years ago. We just know about you know one or two details of a civilization in one part of the world. Oh, we know something about Sumer, you know, and not very much about it. Most of the stuff they've written, we can't even decipher, right? But um, my point is, as time has gone on, the timeline for human prehistory is longer and longer and longer. No longer can we say that humans are only 40,000 years old. We have found basically modern human remains datable back to 300,000 years, and they go back further and further in all parts of the globe. I didn't even talk about it. There are even more radical studies that have dated humans in the Americas back, you know, 130 years or 130,000 years. Okay, that's a long time. That's longer than humans are supposed to have existed, okay? Now, let me put it this way. Uh, let me go ahead and make this argument. And this, I'm going to make this argument even for skeptics, you know, scientists out there, you know, self-proclaimed scientists. Let me put it this way. So let's say you go to Neil deGrasse Tyson, who I think is perfectly, he's not the smartest guy out there, but he's representative of, you know, the entire community of 110 IQ skeptic people, I guess. If you go to Neil deGrasse Tyson and ask him, do aliens exist in the universe? He will nearly certainly say yes. Not because he has evidence of the aliens, but instead there's a massive statistical plausibility judgment. And what that plausibility judgment is, is that, okay, well, there are billions of stars in the galaxy. There are billions of galaxies. Even if life is extremely rare, there's probably, I mean, there's probably going to be some kind of life form out there somewhere, right? Just by definition. In fact, it's it's extremely, unless you specifically believe that uh, life on Earth was created by God and nowhere else, there's really no reason for not thinking there's life all over the universe, right? So, um, and, and that's a sensible argument. Everyone understands that. And my point is that that is true of human prehistory as well. When we are saying that humans have existed on this planet for more more than 100,000 years or 300,000 years or possibly up to, you know, half a million years in our more or less modern form with some, with some changes, of course, we're not exactly the same. 
But if we have humans on the cusp of behavioral modernity for all of these years, there's a pretty good chance that during that period, during half a million years of existence, civilization has flashed in and out of existence pretty often. Now the evidence, you know, let's say specifically 50,000 years ago, let's say there is a civilization on the level of, let's say medieval Europe, at that level of technical complexity. I, it's a little, um, you, you have to remember that the remnants of a civilization pass very quickly, okay? We might think that our skyscraper is going to last forever, but if you think that, look at Chernobyl. Look at how quickly things are falling down there after abandonment. Uh, and it, it's no different for any other level of technical complexity. In fact, the things that are most durable are the simplest things, are the megalithic structures and, and things like that. And I think far in, the, in prehistory, I think there's a pretty good chance frankly, that some level of civilization, not a universal, you know, world civilization, uh, but I think as time has gone on, it's more and more difficult to say that humans have just been sitting around on their butts for hundreds of thousands of years. Okay, that I think is the plausibility judgment. I think it's a very sensible thing to say something like humans you know, civilization, as we even know in written history, civilization, uh, writing, uh, cultural complexity emerged at many different places and times. Okay, you might say that uh, the Middle Eastern civilizations and Egypt, maybe they're related, but we do know examples of, for example, the, the Mayans who originate architecture and a writing system unlike any other on their own accord, in their own private area. Uh, we even have some evidence of, you know, let's say, for those who don't know, some Polynesian people, the, piece, the people of Easter Island, they actually have a written script called Rongo Rongo, which they invented and has existed, and they actually don't even know how to read it anymore, but it was invented at some point in their prehistory, and people knew how to read it up to a couple hundred years ago, and we know that they it's not related to any other writing system ever, Okay. Um, and we don't even know what it, it stores on it, but there are a bunch of writings in it that we can't decipher, okay? So all of this is to say that it's a very sensible thing to think that humans, before written history, before the evidence that survives tells us, there, there are other stuff that we don't know about. I mean, that, that's, that's sort of my point. So today, I'm going to be talking, not so much, I'm not going to, you know, tell you that we was Hyperboreans quite in this episode, um, but... What I want to get at is the idea of mythology as something important for prehistory. Um, now, in the previous episode, which isn't really related, but we did talk about mythology in the last episode. We were talking about David Rolls' revised chronology. Uh, and of course, he makes the point, uh, and it's a very sensible point, that mythology is a way of embedding history, right? Um, so there are some myths like the myth of the, the Trojan War that we now know has a historical reality. Roll makes the argument that many other things that people might think of as myths, uh, other things in Greek folklore, uh, but also a lot of the content of the Bible can be tied to very specific historical phenomena. Okay, And even Roll's critics who don't believe in his chronology, right? a lot of them are actually you know, extreme Bible believers who say, oh yeah, a lot of this stuff that people don't even think about, there is a historical reality to that. And, you know, that's in the, the evidence out there. So last episode, we talk about mythology as history. But in this episode, I want to talk about the idea as, of mythology as science. That might sound a little bit weird. Um, now I'm going to use as a basis today, a book that I actually utterly loathe. I hate this book. I hated this book the first time I read it. 
And I hate this book having read it something like six times now. <laughs> I don't know why I've read it that much, but the book's title is called Hamlet's Mill, an essay investigating the origins of human knowledge and its transmission through myth by Georgia de, Giorgio de, San, de, de Santillana and Herta von Dechent. Um, now, this book has always been controversial, and I'm not alone in hating it. Uh, but I think it brings up some very important points. Now, I, I should say why I hate it. I hate it because it is very poorly written, okay? You can tell it was, um, and it actually makes the case for why it should be poorly written. It says something like, oh, well, well, we're telling you, like, ancient knowledge, which was, wasn't stored in a linear, deductive fashion. So, therefore, that, like, that's our reasons for being incoherent, which I think is totally stupid. The book is very hard to read. Uh, not in terms of, I mean, it's like difficult to read, but it's just not, it doesn't make its argument very clear. Um, so I, I'm going to make the argument clear for you, but I, I do think the reason I'm doing it on this book that I kind of hate is because I think, although all, some of the arguments implicitly they, 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 that they make, I'm not sold on, uh, it brings forth a very important point, okay? Now, what is this point? I'll go ahead and tell you. Um, it's the idea that mythology is a way of storing information over the ages. Now, there's a sense in which that should be obvious, but they will actually argue that it is even scientific and technical knowledge. But of course, it's very obvious that mythology is used to store some kind of cultural information. You know, if you're in some tribal society and you need to tell your kids not to play with snakes, a great way to do it is to, you know, tell them some kind of story about you know, a snake and its its specific traits, how it's crafty and poisonous. And, um, you know, one, one thing, if you look at a lot of uh, primitive cultures, they have a lot of mythology, mythology that's very granulated. It tells you a lot of details about all the different species of animals, all of the different uh, berries you can pick and other plants and stuff like that. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, that, uh, you know, mythology stores. Now, this this is kind of a truism. Everyone knows this. But think, go ahead and think about classical Greek and Roman mythology for a moment. Now, we do know that there are these figures like Jupiter and Saturn and, uh, you know, Neptune and stuff like that in Roman mythology, uh, who, of course, are personalities, and there are many stories about them. But as well, um, they are things in the sky, okay? They are stars. Now, the modern interpretation of that is that there were all these early Indo-European myths, and eventually people decided, well, let's name those things that move in the sky that don't move with the rest of the stars. We'll name them after our figures. We'll name them Jupiter and Saturn or, or you know, whatever, okay? That is the modern interpretation. Now, the interesting thing, this is actually a point made in Hamlet's Mill, is that the ancients had exactly the opposite idea. They had the ideas, oh yes, we, you know, we have these mythological figures called Jupiter and Saturn, but really the terms originate from our names for these planets, these things in the sky. And the mythology is something that comes later, okay? So to be clear, originally there, you know, these are just things out in the open and the stories are things about their movements. They're stories about how they interact with each other. Now this doesn't mean that you can look up on Wikipedia the life of Jupiter uh, and hear his mythological life and then get something very specific about the sky. But the, gen the general point of Hamlet's Mill is that there are many mythological stories which, even though you can't necessarily see them clearly, there are a lot that are based in some kind of, you know, mythology way back when. Um, now, uh, there are a lack 
just to give you an example of, uh, you know, myths like this that survive to the modern era, okay? You can actually look at the Indian tradition uh, for a lot of this, the Vedic tradition. And one of the nice things about India, it's one of the longest standing cultures where we still have things in print or, or they've preserved things in writing. So it's not just stories out there. They're actually pretty accessible in terms of the things you can look up. Just as an example, um, they have um, in, in Indian... Uh, well, I'll go ahead and tell you the story. There's a, there's a story in Indian mythology about uh, Chandra, okay? Now, Chandra, he is married. He, there's a particular wife of a king that he wants to marry. And he decides, okay, you can marry this woman, but you have to marry all 27 of my daughters. Her, she is included in there, but you have to marry the other 26, okay? Um, so... And his the favorite wife is actually named Rohini, but he does marry all of them. But he has a little bias for Rohini. Now, the interesting thing about this is the, the, the number 27 is actually very important in Indian astronomy. Uh, it's actually the numbers, the number of the nakshatras. Now, the nakshatras are, they're kind of like phases of the moon. Now, we divide phases of the moon into like waning gibbous, waxing gibbous, pretty general category, pretty general categories. But in the Indian tradition... Um, they're divided into 27 very specific, you know, basically phases. They're not exactly phases. I'm, I'm simplifying things. But um, either way, this story of Chandra and his preference for one of the phases actually has something to do with the fact that there are particular phases where eclipses and other uh, lunar movements are more common or not. Um, so if you talk to someone, who, you know, steeped in Indian mythology, they will tell you, okay, well, the story about a man marrying all these wives, it actually, ha oh, and the word for Chandra, I think, is related to the the Sanskrit word for moon, I should say that. Um, but this mythological story, which is a lot more memorable than just telling kids some facts about the moon, that is way more memorable than, you know, the alternative, just telling them, you know, information, right? So it's a good way of, of preserving that kind of fact, right? As well, actually, in the Indian tradition, they're um, like the pole star. So I don't know, maybe I should... Well, we're going to be getting into kind of astronomy, so I, I should probably make things clear to people. Because modern people, I guess, don't, you know, we don't look at the skies that often. We don't know our stars. We maybe know one constellation if we're lucky. Um, but you may know there is a north star, okay? That, and we call that Polaris. Uh, we will actually talk about this later, but Polaris is not always the north star. At least uh, in several thousands of years, it will change because of the precession of the equinoxes. But in general... Um, the pole star is pretty much constant, and all the other stars seem to rotate around it, okay? Now, in the Indian tradition as well, the, the name for the pole star is also a, the name of a mythological figure called Dhruva, which I think means something like the unmoved one, um, because in the, the mythological story, he's just a constant person. Uh, you know, he, he uh, doesn't have any... He suppresses his desires and stuff like that and isn't moved by emotion and stuff like that. Um, and actually, the Indians, you know, they what we call the Big Dipper, or, you know, uh, well, I guess some Americans call it the Big Dipper. Uh, uh, but, you know, that constellation in the north sky, the Indians view those seven stars as the uh, seven sages, which actually rotate around Dhruva and stuff like that. And there are mythological stories. I'm just alluding to these. But there are mythological stories actually behind all of this stuff. Okay. Um, now, in Hamlet's Mill, now, now that I'm, I'm sort of on this tangent about Indian stuff, in Hamlet's Mill, they actually mention, there's a, there's a famous Arab uh, tra uh, uh, traveler who actually went to India that they mention in passing uh, called Al-Biruni. And they note the fact that he actually went to India early in history 
and was complaining about the fact that Indians, you know, they have all these stories about mythological figures in the sky and they can actually tell you a lot like they can predict where when eclipses and all this kind of when movements of the planets how they're going to happen they can know all that stuff but they don't actually know the sky they don't actually know how to look at the stars themselves because all of this information is embedded in the technique embedded in the mythology they don't actually look up at the sky anymore uh, and there's some reason to think that other astronomical cultures like the Babylonians and, and the Mayans and stuff like that, it was sort of the same way. They had all this formalization uh, partially encoded in mythology where they could make astrological and astronomical predictions. Um, and they didn't really care that much. Once you once you formalized all that, you don't really actually need to look at the stars that much in the same way that we have calendars that tell us about the seasons. We don't have to think about, oh, you know, what uh, constellation is the sun rising in this month? That'll tell me what season we're in. That doesn't, that doesn't matter, right? Um, but anyway, Al Biruni is a, now, while I'm on that, Hamlet's Mill doesn't talk about this, but Al Biruni is kind of an interesting guy. You know, as I said, he went to India and he was sort of famous. He was definitely a chauvinist in the sense that like, I, it, okay, you know, I'm not gonna, I don't, I don't mean to speak ill of Arabs or anything, but, um, Arabic society, of course, compared to classical India, is definitely a backwater. Okay, there's no question that when Al-Biruni was going out there, he was in a civilization much more complex and had a much more written history uh, and, you know, deeper knowledge going into prehistory than, than Arab society did. But uh, I remember reading something actually in linguistics. Biruni actually wrote a lot about, uh, or a little about, he didn't write well about it, but he wrote about uh, how Indians studied grammar. And, of course, the classical language of India is Sanskrit. Um, and uh, he, he just remember he was talking about when he learned Sanskrit, he was pronouncing everything wrong. Uh, and he was talking, he was really being indignant about, oh, these people don't know what they're talking about. I'm talking, I'm pronouncing things right. They, those sounds, the, those sounds all sound the same. I don't know what they're talking about. So Baruni was just kind of a, he's one of those guys. He's uh, but, uh, you can sort of see that in what he said uh, of astronomy as well. Um, either way, so, so that's the general idea. There are a lot of, it's it's the norm, and this is the thing I, I want to get through. This isn't just like a meme. This isn't like uh, something that a couple societies do. It's actually the norm, especially in pre-literate societies or societies where writing is not ubiquitous or maybe it's just with you know a couple people. It is a universal to store cultural information, scientific information, all of this kind of stuff in mythology. And part of the claim of Hamlet's Mill is that in essence, mythology is itself a technical language. Now, uh, the other year, actually, uh, back when I was doing Lunchtime with Luke as a, a video series, I did a video, um, I think it was called, We're the Ancient Morons. We're the Ancients Morons, okay? And, and what I talked about that, and I'll make the point here, is the fact that a lot of things very early in prehistory, you read sub, or history in general, um, if you read especially like quote-unquote spiritual texts, there are a lot of things we just literally have no comprehension of. Um, uh, you know, the Egyptian Book of the Dead. A lot of it, you translate it and, uh, you know, the, the, the authors of this book make the point that um, there's something like 40 different words in Egyptian that we translate as heaven. And they all mean something a little bit different in ancient Egyptian. We just don't exactly know what they mean. So we're really translating all this stuff that we don't, we, we have no clue, unless you already know what they're talking about, you can't translate it. And the point I actually made in that video is if, if you took something in our culture, you know, let's say like a, a guide to computing, where you're talking about Unix programs or something like that, and you left that in the ground for someone to dig it up, you know, a thousand years in the future, 
it's absolutely going to make no sense. They're going to be like, what are these crazy people talking about? They're inventing all of these concepts and, you know, everything's going back and forth. And the point that I think Hamlet's Mill makes and that this general approach makes is that a lot of the times when we're looking at something, when we're seeing ancient people put all of this force and effort and meticulousness into getting these absurd sounding things right, there's actually a chance we're looking at a theoretical language, a jargon, a kind of technical jargon that has been lost to time. We don't exactly know what they're talking about. And their point is mythology is a part of this. Uh, mythological stories were a way of, of storing this kind of, uh, uh, you know, information. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so that's the point. Now, Hamlet's Mill, that's the general argument behind it. And that, that I think, is the a, a very sensible and uh, pretty much straightforward idea. But specifically, there, I should talk about why the book is called Hamlet's Mill. Because this is where I think things are a little bit more uh, controversial. Okay. Uh, well, this is really just me saying I don't uh, necessarily buy into this. I should say that I do podcast episodes on a lot of things. A lot of them I don't necessarily buy into. A lot of people think there's some kind of organization behind all this. Like, I'm, I'm trying to convince you of something. Um, well, besides Hyperborea was real, but, <laughs> you know, I told you that one. Um, so, their specific argument is as follows. There is this thing called the procession of the equinoxes that I alluded to before. Now, what this is... Um, just so you know, as I mentioned, we have a pole star that is the North Star, and everything else in the night sky will revolve around it. It is the axis. Everything else is going around it. Okay? So if you imagine, imagine the Earth, you know, imagine looking at the globe, um, and it has a big axis through the North and South Poles, and, of course, it's going around and around and around every single day. Okay? Now, here's the thing. The Earth also wobbles. Now, it's partially the Earth wobbling, it's partially the solar system wobbling. Um, but in addition of just going around and around, the Earth, it, it's sort of like a top that is not just spinning, but sort of, you know, uh, there's, uh, it goes around in kind of a larger wobble gradually and slowly while it's spinning a bajillion times. That is basically what the Earth does, or really our celestial plane does. Uh, it, it, again, it's partially the whole solar system. Uh, and that is called the precession of the equinoxes. And what that means is, as time goes on, we are actually moving, you know, where, you know, where the sun will rise in what, uh, or, you know, where certain things happen. It's, it's called the procession of the equinoxes because, you know, what, uh, you know, what stars, what constellation things are going to be rising in and stuff will change actually over this long period of time. Now, of course, we know that a day, la you know, one rotation of the earth will lasts a day. Um, but the procession of the equinoxes is extremely long. It's something like between 40 or it's between um, 24 and 26,000 years. Okay. That's how long it takes for the earth to, to go around in this wobble. So it's very slow. Um, but, it, you know, it's something, I think it's something like 1%. If you do the math, it's something like 1% in a lifespan. So, you know, maybe around 70 years or so, it moves 1%. Uh, I think if you do that, you can probably do the math and check me on that. There's actually a lot of debate about how long the procession of the equinoxes actually takes. Now, the particular argument of Hamlet's Mill is as follows. There is a story of this guy called Hamlet. Now, we know Hamlet from Shakespeare, but Shakespeare did not invent Hamlet. Uh, in other Germanic culture, cultures, he's called Amleth or Amlothi. Uh, those are all related names. Um, there's this figure of Hamlet, and he actually goes back to many other world cultures. They liken him to characters in Iranian folklore, 
Iranian folklore also being Indo-European, but also, but also Finnish folklore. There's a story of a similar character, uh, analogous to, to, of course, Finnish people are not Indo-European, but there's a character in their mythology analogous to Hamlet as well, okay? And many other places they bring up. Now, for those who don't know Hamlet, the, the story of Hamlet, in general, omitting many, many details, it's the story of a man who is, you know, the prince of a kingdom, and his father is slain by his uncle. That is Hamlet's uncle, the brother of the king, kills the king and usurps his throne. And in Shakespeare's Hamlet, and in some other versions as well, Hamlet pretends to be crazy or stupid. And the reason he's, he does that is so that his uncle will not kill him, okay? And, you know, if you've seen Shakespeare's Hamlet, it ends in tragedy. Eventually, everyone dies at the end. Now, Hamlet, of course, avenges his father's death, but he does die at the end in the process. But at least he tells people what happens, tries to right the wrongs. But in many other versions, most other versions, actually, Hamlet survives. Um, you know, he defeats the evil king. Uh, Hamlet's Mill, the book, goes through, uh, what is it, Snorri Sorlson's, uh version of the story, which is actually very, I don't know, very, very not, probably better than Shakespeare's Hamlet. Not dramatically, but in terms of like, uh, it would probably make a better film, you know. Um, not just because it, I guess, has a happier ending, but it, it, Hamlet basically plays stupid and smart at the same time. Uh, it's, anyway, it's an interesting story. But that, the particulars of the story are not very interesting to them. What is interesting is the fact that they note that not in Shakespeare's Hamlet, but in other, uh, in other you know, Scandinavian cultures and uh, you know, the Iranian culture as well, there's an association with the Hamlet character with a mill or you know, some kind of thing for grinding, uh, you know, mill. Well, okay, um, specifically there's this, there's this idea that he has this magical mill that grinds out gold, okay, with the first age. And as the second age comes about, it starts grinding out silver or some lesser metal, and then it grinds out, you know, bronze or, and then salt, and then, you know, just gravel and garbage. I forget exactly the order, but that's the general idea. So Hamlet has a cosmic mill. Now this is not, again, this is not in Shakespeare's Hamlet whatsoever. You won't see any kind of relationship with that. And the mill is also associated with the whirlpool, okay? The whirlpool, why did I say that? The whirlpool. I think I used to say whirlpool as a kid. I, th I think that's why. It's like my brother used to say the Silver War <laughs> instead of the Civil War. Anyway, um, so Hamlet has this mill that is associated with cosmic changes. Now, the particular thing about a mill, if you know how a mill works, when you're actually grinding, you know, when you're kind of uh, rotating in it around, it's actually sort of similar to the idea of the procession of the equinoxes. And what they allege is that all of these different cultures, the, the story of Hamlet, although it's very different now, back in the day, it was actually a story about the procession of the equinoxes. And Hamlet has this mill that's a cosmic mill, and he is, there's a change of kings, uh, that you know corresponds with the changing of ages, and this originally was a way of talking about the procession of the equinoxes way back when in this early civilization. Now um, the writers of Hamlet's Mill are what are called hyperdiffusionists. Okay, now this is basically what Graham Hancock is, except for you know he has Atlantis and you know some uh, ayahuasca tacked onto it. But the idea of <laughs> hyperdiffusionism is the idea that a lot of the cultural similarities between different cultures of the world come from the fact that they have a precursor, a common precursor, all right? 
And their argument is in essence, there was one original culture, maybe in the Middle East, that goes back way, way back before Babylon and Sumer and stuff like that, that had some kind of knowledge of the procession of the equinoxes. And they wrote about it in myth, or not wrote about it, but they stored it in mythological language. And the story of Hamlet is a very, you know, contorted by history, but it, it in essence is a remnant of all of that. Um, and I should also say there are other remnants in these Hamlet stories. I mentioned there's an Iranian side of it. Um, and they note there's this point at in the story where the king uh, who installs himself makes some note that he is, oh, I'm the king from, I forget exactly what constellation, but it's something like Aries to Pisces or something like that. Makes some kind of astrological, uh, you know, something related to the procession of the equinoxes. I am the king from these astrological ages, okay? And their point is that all of this goes back to this original source. Now, I will go ahead and flatly say that I am not sold on this procession of the equinoxes uh, idea. That Ham I think all of it is very... Uh, they, uh, some people are persuaded. There are some people, even in the, the scientific literature, who will be like, oh, this is an idea that should be looked at. Um, there might be some reason for thinking it. But I am not totally sold on the specific idea that the procession of the equinoxes is something that comes from prehistory. Now, it may, in fact, come, but I'm just not really so sure about, uh, you know, the whole Hamlet story um, being related and all that kind of stuff. I do think that uh, Hamlet's Mill, I think in general, they make, their general point is good, that mythology stores this kind of information. I'm just not sold on the particular example uh, that they use throughout the book, but, you know. Um, Anyway, I think I'm going to make a little break now. There are a couple donations to read. I'll go ahead and say, I didn't say it earlier, but this, is, of course, is a podcast. This is not related. Go to notrelated.xyz. Um, you can donate and leave a comment at donate.notrelated.xyz. I recently redid the website. It's only a little bit, a little bit different. It's just minimal. I mean, it's always been minimalist, but um, you can leave a donation there. And as I said... Leave a monthly donation. You will not be charged every month, only on months where I am doing the podcast. So if I take a break, you will not be charged whatsoever. In fact, I said the people who signed up when I said that in the last episode last month, you will not be charged for, you know, at the beginning of October since I only did one episode. So, you know, that, that's a freebie. Um, either way, uh, I will be back in just one moment with some uh, comments to read. All right, again, uh, donate.notrelated.xyz if you want to leave a comment or donation. Um, I will also say you can leave uh, Bitcoin and Monero donations if you do that. Just shoot me an email saying, oh, this was my transaction, and I will, you know, I'll trust you. I don't get that many Bitcoin and Monero donations, so I'll trust that it's actually you, not, you know, you noticing someone else donated and sending me the notification. Uh, but um, yeah, anyway, well, I guess you can't even see if I'm getting a Monero donation, so it doesn't matter. Uh, okay, so let's see what we got here. Um, uh, Andreessen's in $10 a month. Thank you for bringing back the podcast to life. Thank you. Alberto, uh, $5 per month, no comment. Thank you. Philip, 5 per month, no comment. Uh, Carl, uh, $20. Thank you for the great episode. Thank you, Carl. Um, Samuel, uh, donates, ooh, a hundred dollars a month. Great. Wow. Now I definitely have to do this. Um, he says, I would be grateful if you had variable length podcasts allotting each topic as much time as you felt was appropriate. 
Um, yeah, I think, um, well, I will say, I know I mentioned the last episode, oh, maybe I should do shorter episodes for some things. And I will say most of the comments I got said, no, don't do that. It has to be deep dives and stuff like that. And I will say this episode might be an example of this. When I don't, when I feel like one specific topic isn't going to fill a full hour, I will usually have plenty of other topics uh, to bring up and talk about. And this is going to be the case here. Um, I, I've al almost said everything I need to say about Hamlet's Mill, but there's a lot of other stuff. I'm going to talk about archaeoastronomy in the second portion and a bunch of other things. Um, so I think I can manage doing a full hour, and I know that people like, I know people just like long podcasts, um, just because they like listening to something. I, I don't know. I'm not really that kind of person, but I'm just going to make sure, I'm not going to force it out. I'm not going to make any episode longer than it needs to be, because I guarantee you whenever I am planning these episodes, there there is so much more information that I could always touch on. Uh, I was almost going to tell you about, you know, you know, Native American, uh, uh, you know, stories about the afterlife experience and all that kind of stuff. We're skipping that. We're skipping a lot of, I actually bought books even for this episode that I'm not going to use. But um, so I will have plenty of content. Don't worry about, you know, just doing uh, little episodes on little topics because every topic is big. Like I could keep talking about a lot of this stuff. So, but anyway, thank you for that. Um, uh, $10 from, uh, I don't exactly know how to read this, but, you know, whatever. Um, William donates uh, $5 per month. Um, Rami, 5 per month. Thank you. Uh, 20 from CP and then a bunch, of, or no, from uh, Roomba. He says, I'm super glad to see more than not related podcasts. Love your deep dives into random interesting topics. Please don't stop. Thank you. Uh, Tom says, oh, this is an important comment. Tom says, uh, he gives $5 per month. He says, please switch back to MP3. Uh, I will say no, I'm not going to switch back to MP3. And the reason I am doing AUG, uh, some people have noted this and some people have emailed me about it because if, especially if you're using an iOS device, Apple does not, um, shoot, there's this freaking roach that's on my shoe. You may have noticed early in the podcast, I didn't edit this out. <laughs> there was a point where like I kind of gasped because this freaking roach had jumped on my foot, okay? I don't know where it is. My house is perfectly clean. I want to be clear. Uh, but I didn't bother getting up to smash this guy. Oh, you know, I think he's actually a cricket. Okay, it's not that bad. Don't worry about it. He's just an ugly cricket. Uh, anyway, why am I doing AUG instead of MP3? Firstly, AUG is better quality, and it's also, you know, an open codec. MP3, I think, is out of copyright in most countries now, so it doesn't matter. Um, but it also takes a lot less file size. So I'm thinking sort of the future... You know, just storing things effectively. It's a better format than MP3. Um, there are some iOS, like Apple has been really slow to have compatibility with it. If you are on iOS, you know, and you use some kind of app on that for your podcast, you definitely can get an AUG compatible um, thing. I, really, you should just move on to AUG. You, your player needs to have that compatibility. So I, I'm gonna, I know I might be losing viewership because there might be some people who don't know how to download better apps. Um, uh, if you're using Android, I know AntennaPod works perfectly fine. It's great. Subscribe to an RSS feed, which, of course, the RSS feed is not related. .xyz slash RSS, obviously. Um, and, of course, it's all compatible and stuff like that. But, yeah, I, I know some people have complained about that. I... I made that decision specifically for the second season. I'm going to be using AUG. And a lot of people, when I was using MP3, correctly said it's better to use AUG. Um, so I would like to force you to use it 
So get get an app that's compatible. Most of them nowadays should be, okay? Frankly, it's the same thing with Apple. It's the same thing with Flack. It took them forever to have compatibility with it. You used to, when I had an iPod back when I was a little kid, you couldn't have a Flack file on it. It was ridiculous. Actually, I, I'm. they might not even have full com compatibility with Flack now, but it's a free audio codec. There's no reason they shouldn't have. Anyway, um, uh, Schneier sends in $5 a month. Thank you. Maxim, uh, $10, um, one-time donation. Um, uh, BJ Odd uh, sends in $5. Hey Luke, uh, what's wrong with SSRIs? I take one because I have pretty severe OCD, lived in the hospital for a while, and wait, <laughs> this is not not related related. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I have no reason to talk about SSRIs here. I don't know, maybe I'll save that for like a live stream or something. Um, and then one other donation that a guy emailed me, uh, which is, this I saved this for last because it actually brings up some important points actually to what we're going to talk about today. Um, so this is from John. Uh, he says in, uh, he says, your most recent episode made me think of Norwegian quote unquote pseudo archaeologist Thor Heyerdahl's final project, The Hunt for Odin, in which he attempts to trace the origin of the Aesir and Vanir uh, back to the Northern Caucasus region. Now those are, are, I guess, not exactly, well, they're basically gods in Scandinavian folklore for people who don't know. Um, and, uh, you know, they had some kind of battle. Uh, I, I'm not that actually familiar with uh, Scandinavian folklore where one overcame the other, something like that. Um, you can look it up if you want. Uh, either way, so he gives me the link. He says, this project was also subject to intense criticism from established academics, much like uh, Heyerdahl's previous escapades, such as the Kontiki and Ra expeditions, which later have gained academics favor following some DNA evidence to support his hypotheses, particularly South American admixture found in native Polynesian popul populations. I think Heyerdahl is highly relevant to your points regarding science, skeptics, that's in meme parentheses, and eccentrics like Gimbutas or Rawl. Uh, maybe you were familiar uh, with uh, him, but in case you weren't, I hope this is of some interest to you. The podcast is unironically my favorite content to consume, by the way. Keep it up. Um, and then he also asks, is there a way of donating XMR and appending a message to the donation? I went for fiat this time, but I would obviously prefer to send crypto in the future. Again, you can just send me an email now. I actually have been working up a server that will, you know, you can uh, send a, uh, you can type it in on a server and, and it'll give the donation when you send in crypto. But uh, you can just email me. That's fine. Uh, or e the podcast email, which technically exists, is not related at cedars.xyz, but you can use my personal email. That's fine. Um, anyway, so Th Thor Heyerdahl, uh, I have mixed feelings about him. Now, for those who don't know, okay, this guy's a little interesting because this is a point I utterly agree with, okay? Um, he made the case that a lot of ancient civilizations have the te had the technological knowledge and capacity to travel oceans, okay? The Egyptians could have gotten to America. Um, you know, P Polynesian people could have easily gotten to South America or, or something like that. Now, let me actually red pill you guys if you don't know about this. It is a fact, I, I will go ahead and say it's a fact, that Polynesians did in fact come to America before, you know, Columbus, okay? We, we know that for a fact. Now, we don't have any uh, written evidence of that, but we have physical evidence, okay? Polynesians actually get sweet potatoes. They grow sweet potatoes and other kinds of related plants, which come from South America. 
Now, you might say, oh, well, maybe they just fell in the ocean and, you know, they, Easter Island is pretty close. Maybe one washed up there and then they moved from there. You could say that. But the word, the Polynesian word for sweet potato, which I think is kumar or something like that. Uh, well, of course, Polynesian languages are different, but it's something, it has that phonetic shape. It actually looks exactly like the Quechua word, the, the language the Inca, Incas use for sweet potato. They are exactly the same. So you're, if you're going to find this thing in the ocean, you're not going to happen to name it exactly what, you know, uh, some other culture across the sea. It, they didn't carve the name on it, right? Um, not like they could read it anyway. So we do know, and there is even genetic evidence of this. Okay, you can look at Polynesian people. Um, th now, in this email, he notes something else we'll talk about in a second, uh, some other genetic affinity. But we know for a fact that there are Polynesian people who have some admixture of South American people. So there's genetic evidence now, uh, and this is a, a relatively recent thing. Uh, there is the e linguistic evidence of them having a word borrowed from this other culture, uh, a word for something that materially should not be in Polynesia, okay? So we know for a fact that the Polynesians did manifestly discover America. And of course, the, th the thing that I think people need to realize, not just in this case, but in other cases, there were not fireworks all over the world when this happened, okay? The, uh, them finding the Americas, that is not like something that it, people are going to notice. And I think it's very plausible that there have been many cases of people going across the ocean, sailing over the Bering Strait, sailing over the wide ocean, sailing, you know, of course, we know the Vikings went to Iceland and then Greenland and then to North America, you know, Canada. Um, we know all that happened. And I think there are, there's probably a very strong case that that happened many other times in history, okay, that we just don't know about. Um, and there are some cases, there are some like folklorish cases. I remember, I know there's a story like in Ireland back in the Middle Ages, there was um, like some idea, there was some story that there was one day that this boat with like really weird looking people in weird clothes, like washed up on Ireland's shore, or maybe that's Iceland, I forget. Either way, uh, Iceland would be closer, but you know, some boat that basically had uh, some kind of Eskimo people in it that, you know, were totally alien to them. Uh, so I, I think that's a very strong possibility. Now, as it comes to some of Heyerdahl's claims, uh, nowadays with modern genomics, if you're saying something, I, I want to say that he also had some uh, idea that like specifically Scandinavian people were in uh, the Pacific, which is not like, that's not genetic, or maybe, maybe I'm confusing it with something else, but um, th there's not genetic evidence for that. And the lack of genetic evidence is sometimes constitutes, uh, you expect there to be some kind of signal, you know, if that were there, but I might be confusing that with something else. Um, but yeah, he's a good example of, from what I understand, I'm not that familiar with his work. Um, and he was definitely called a pseudo-scientist and pseudo-archaeologist and stuff like that. And of course, he did make very extreme claims. But the point I was making in the last episode is that, yeah, you need people who make extreme claims. Uh, I, I mean, we, we have Sh uh, Schliemann who thought that freaking Troy was a real thing. You know, oh, I think the Trojan War actually happened, and he went to go look for it. Oh, look, Troy is a real place. <laughs> Maybe you don't believe everything in the Iliad and the Odyssey, but it is a real place, right? Um, and I think a lot of this, especially when it comes to absence of evidence, right? Oh, well, we don't have any evidence that, you know, people sailed the Pacific or the Atlantic. But, hey, if they had the technology, it's a possibility. People cannot rule that out. Now, when it comes to the Americas, uh, now, he did also mention, uh, let me read this again. Uh, 
they have later gained favor with academic or ra- later gained academics favor following some DNA evidence to support his hypothesis, specifically South American admixture found in native. Oh no, no, sorry, that's something different. Okay, I was I'm going to change the topic to something even more interesting. Okay, so especially when it comes to the Americas, way back in the day, decades ago. Okay, there used to be this idea. Now I- I'm talking about something that sounds irrelevant, but it is not irrelevant. Um, there used to be this idea that there was a Clovis culture, you know, around, uh, you know, t- what, like 10,000 BC, you know, maybe 12,000 BC. And that w- that is the culture, is a very wide culture that existed in the Americas, mostly North America. I, I think they may have had some South American presence. I'm not entirely sure. But it's, I guess I'm more familiar with the North American side because that's what you learn in schools in America. Um, but there was this massive archaeological culture that had, you know, very notable arrow points and stuff called the Clovis culture. And for a long time, everyone had the idea that they must have been the first people in America. And the reason that is, is because around that point is the point where you have this bearing land bridge that goes, you know, due to the ice age and the water being, you know, in ice caps, you could walk from Siberia to the Americas. Only during this point, not before, not after. Therefore, in the conventional reasoning, this much must be when people populated the Americas. Okay, that seemed like a sensible argument. Now, um, as time went on in the 20th century, late 20th century, it became very obvious that there were many, 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 many archaeological sites that did not fit with this because people existed in the Americas not 10,000 years ago, but 20,000 years ago or 30,000 years ago. Or I alluded to there's there are even some sites. Uh, there, there's a site uh, by a guy named uh, Tom Demeray. It's, it's very controversial that dates people to the Americas 130,000 years in the past. Um, now, it's actually, it's a slaughter site of a mammoth where there are very particular ways that they work the bone. They like put a tusk in the ground, like human footprints in essence. You know, you could tell that humans would be around here. Uh, now that's a very controversial one because that really pushes it back. But it's definitely the case that humans seem to pre-exist this alleged land bridge, um, you know, uh, connecting Siberia and the Americas, right? Now, the other, the even more, I don't know, obvious case is there is now DNA data, and this is not the DNA data that he was talking about. This is something different. Uh, you know, that is Polynesian people, which are one racial group, have some South American admixture. That's one fact. But there's another group that are sometimes called Austro or Melanesian people. Um, or so these would be like uh, Aboriginal Australians or Melanesian people. Melanesian that just means the Black Islanders in Greek because they're they're sort of dark skinned, uh, kind of Negritos. I don't know if people know who these kind of people are, but they're they're dark skinned people that live in Southeast Asia and Aboriginal Australians are related to them. Um, and the the interesting thing is in recent genetic studies, and this is beyond all, the, all doubt now. There is actually a strong signal of these kind of people in the Amazon, in Amazon populations, okay? So in South America, of course, now genetically, these people are largely similar to other Indian groups, like Amerindian groups, but in especially the Brazilian rainforest, there is this genetic artifact of, well, it's not an artifact. There is a genetic signal of Australian-like people. Okay, that is the craziest thing for many reasons, okay? Um, Firstly, it's only in South America, not in North America. 
So if you want to say an Australian person came up out of Australia or the region, went into Siberia, went over in the north, and then came into North America, that's really weird because there's no evidence of that in North America, okay? You only have this signal in the south. And that, to me, there people have made up many crazy theories for these as to how oh, maybe populations sorted when they came in the, on the Bering Strait and one went to the south, one went to the north. I think they're all bad arguments because once you... I guess, open up to the possibility of uh, people sailing the oceans at some point in prehistory, frankly, uh, it becomes nearly impossible to explain, okay? And I, I see, I think there are two possibilities. Possibility one is that this population, this kind of Australian-like population, at a very early time in prehistory, let's say 100,000 years ago, they came into the Americas and they settled there, okay? Then... 20,000 years ago, or, you know, probably, I don't, well, maybe even closer, maybe the time that people traditionally date Amerindians moving to the Americas, the other population comes over. It might actually have to be early. I'm trying to think if there's genetic evidence of this population being back. There's archaeological evidence of people being there. I don't know if it's specifically this population, but later on, another population comes in and they totally displace these people in North America. And they mostly displace, displace meaning like kill, basically. <laughs> um, and they mostly displaced them in South America with some remnants, okay? They kind of interbreed with them in South America. I think that's one possibility. That's the second most plausible possibility. But I think the most plausible one is that in a period in prehistory or, you know, early history, these people had some ability to make oceanic travel and they settled, they came to South America and they bred with the populations there, okay? I, th I think that's, actually, you know, maybe... There's a, there might be a case for the other one being more plausible. I got, you got to think it through. Um, but the, the weird thing about this is that in Polynesia, in, if you look at Oceania, um, the people we know as Polynesians, which are racially, you know, they, they vaguely look like, uh, well, I mean, they, they look like Polynesian people. I don't know. They're vaguely genetically similar to East Asians. They have stocky bodies and stuff like that. That is the population that actually acquires these outrigger. They, they develop these outrigger canoes that can make oceanic travel, uh, and they travel all over the place from Polynesia. They, they're actually um, Madagascar on the coast of Africa. Um, that actually has the, these people went as far as there. The population of Madagascar is actually partially settled by these people. Uh, and they eventually interbred with, uh, you know, I guess, sub-Saharan Africans and stuff. Although I'm pretty sure the there's, I'm pretty sure it's considered that they are, uh, they uh, came there before sub-Saharan Africans. I'm not, I'm not quite sure though. Um, either way, um, what I was going to say is these Polynesian people they have a, a known culture of seafaring, but Australian-like people, you know, th those kind of people actually don't. We have no record of them seafaring in any at any time recent in history but we do know they somehow got to australia and it was not connected by land at all you know these periods of time uh so they must have been sailing at some point so um and i will also add this is just to give you a, a sense of perspective you know when we're talking about a hundred thousand years ago i mean aboriginal australians they separated from uh the rest of the human population you know what like eighty thousand years ago something like that um, back 80,000 years ago, that is like the period where Denisovan people still exist. Like this, this group that's not really, it's, con it's sort of human, but it's not 
always classified as human and homo erectuses if they they could have still been around i I think they may actually if if they died it was very recently you know what i mean so you got to remember how different things were at that period back in time when we're talking about periods like a hundred thousand years ago we're talking about there being a bunch of different like human kinds and stuff like that and you know all the the groups are interbreeding and and there's a bunch of ambiguity but uh, either way that was a very prolonged uh I, that was a prolonged discussion about this topic, and uh, apologies if that wasn't organized. Um, but I think it's an important question because it actually gets at the fact that uh, our prevailing assumption always has to be that people are traveling more than we have evidence of uh, and that they're moving around more than we have evidence of. We now have genetic evidence in both of these cases that there is an Australian affinity or there's a yeah Australian affinity in the Amazon and that there is you know a genetic, relationship between South Americans and Polynesians, but that is very recent data and we might find more. We might find many other, you know, pretty uh, incredible uh, changes. There are actually some, um, there are some, uh, uh, there is a, another theory. I'm not totally sold on this, but while I'm on it, I might as well talk about it. There's also what's called the Salutrian hypothesis. I don't know if people have heard about this, um, but the Clovis culture, which again, I, I mentioned was thought to be the earliest archeological culture in North America, um, their summary, their, they have technology that is very similar to the Salutrian culture in um, Europe, at actually around that period, a little afterwards, but it, you know, it's in the ballpark. And so there's been some people who have made the claim that um, the Salutrian culture somehow seeded the, uh, the culture in, you know, North America that maybe they had traveled over. Now, th this, I think, th there's uh, less circumstantial evidence for this, but I will say recently I saw a paper that, um, I, I, I should have brought it up before I started this episode, but I recently saw a paper that said there is a kind of particular genetic affinity between Western Europeans and, uh, you know, Amerindian people uh, that is not just Siberians moving over, but particularly a relationship with Western Europe. Um, and this could actually be at some prehistoric level, you know, the, the genetics we call Western European, they may have been more, you know, predominant in Siberia, or people may have gone over the Bering land bridge or something like that. But I think it leaves open the possibility of, of some kind of relationship between North America and Europe as well, uh, in terms of contact. But I'm not as sold on the Salutrian hypothesis of the idea. I think it's undeniable that Polynesians had contact with America and that there's some, uh, there's some obvious uh, connection between Australia and, uh, South, you know, the Australian-like people. I shouldn't really say Australian because it's a more general group. But uh, anyway, so <laughs> that, I think that's been a discussion long enough. Let's get back to what, I, what we were talking about. Now, as I said before, I'm not totally sold on this whole idea that the procession of the equinoxes can be traced back to a Hamlet story that, you know, comes from prehistory and stuff like that. Although I do like, in fact, I, I find it almost trivially true, uh, the idea in Hamlet's Mill that mythology is a way of storing technical and even scientific information. Um, you know, I am utterly of the belief that a lot of the things we cannot decipher in early human languages are mostly due to the fact that we... You know, there, there's a language that we are utterly, a technical language that we're utterly unaware of. Um, now, one example I'm reminded of, and I, I'm thinking about actually doing uh, an episode on this uh, later on, is medieval alchemy. Okay, it's a, it's a very good example of this because alchemy is very misunderstood. It uses a technical language. Now, the, the modern idea of alchemy, of course, is, oh, they were like trying to make gold out of lead or something like that. 
Um, or either that or the stupid Jungian, oh, it's all about your, I don't know, your freaking self. It's all like a self-help program or something, something psychological, but whatever. <laughs> um, alchemy is a good example of a science that survived, you know, for ages in antiquity in the Middle Ages and people had technical treatises and went back and forth on these technical points. Um, but because, you know, that kind of Aristotelian worldview that it's partially based on, and really it had its own kind of hermetic worldview, because that worldview is past the time, we read this stuff and it just sounds like gobbledygook. It sounds like nonsense. Even though the alchemists, even though people, uh, you know, will look at them as being, oh, they're proto-science, they weren't really doing real science, um, a lot of our chemical developments quite literally come from the study of alchemy, not just... Well, of course, there's the obvious example of hermetic sealing, which is actually named after Hermes. Um, but a lot of the, the chemistry that we are familiar with comes from, you know, alchemical studies. And they were the first people who really did empirical stuff. Um, anyway, like all of this is to say that uh, even uh, this is not me giving like a, a full throated endorsement to alchemy or, or astrology or something like that. But I think the thing we always have to keep in mind is that a lot of these studies are things that sound stupid because we don't understand what they really meant at the period. Uh, and I think that is also the case with information stored within mythology. Now, just to be clear, although we don't necessarily, although, although I don't think it's an ironclad case that the procession of the equinoxes goes to prehistory, you know, it's usually, um, you know, it's usually dated to Hipparchus, for those who don't know, um, who was a Greek who actually studied Babylonian astronomy uh, and popularized it in the Greek world. Um, now, we don't actually have Hipparchus's writings, I should say. We have uh, Ptolemy in his Almagest writes uh, about Hipparchus, about his studies, uh, and why he, thought, why he noted the procession of the equinoxes. Um, he noticed that his measurements of degrees were off from someone who made it in the past and stuff like that. Um, that, so that in mainstream history, that is where the idea of the procession of the equinoxes come from. But that doesn't preclude anyone in prehistory knowing about it. But anyway, that's just to say. But what I was going to say is uh, Hipparchus and everyone else are working off of a Babylonian or pre-Babylonian patrimony that I think it's at least worth talking about. Okay, So there are a lot of things out there that people don't really know where they come from. Like memes that everyone takes for granted, but no one's entirely sure where they come from. Let me give you an example. We have a seven-day week. Why are weeks seven days? <laughs> the week is not something, anything inherent. I mean, it's like a month more or less corresponds to the cycle of a moon. Uh, you know, the year, of course, corresponds with, you know, the seasons and, and you know, all this kind of stuff. But what is a week? I mean, a week is just sort of this weird division. Um, now, of course, the Bible gives us a story of where the week came from. Um, God rested on the seventh day, and that, that's the story that, if people know, they're most familiar with. But in early civilizations, actually outside of the Hebrews, the Hebrews were less astronomic, astrologically inclined. They were a little less superstitious than some other people. Um, but in other cultures in that region, the week, as it became a meme, as it became a common practice, was always associated with astrology. And that's because, obviously, we know, you know, Sunday and, you know, Monday is the moon day, right? Um, all of the, the days of the week are seven, and they're named after the seven important 
uh, astro astronomical objects out, out there. You know, the sun and the moon and then the five visible planets. So that would be Mars, Mercury, oh, excuse me, <coughs> Mars, Mercury, Jupiter, Jupiter, Venus, and Saturn. Okay. Um, so that's where they actually come from. Um, and the thing is, we don't really know how early that goes back. It really just, uh, we have evidence that at least the Sumerians had that idea, but did they popularize it? Was it them or was it some something before? I mean, where does this meme come from? Because it goes very far back and it doesn't, it doesn't have a date on it. We, we're not really entirely sure. Um, but it is definitely a, associated with, with this kind of astrological or astronomical knowledge. It's associated with the, uh, the uh, you know, planets and the sun and the moon. Um, and of course, in China, you know, the Chinese word for week, uh, which is xinqi, uh, that is actually related to, I mean, it literally means like a, I guess, a star time period or, or stellar period or something like that. Um, additionally, another thing we utterly take for granted, um, how many degrees are in a circle? Okay. There are 360 degrees in a circle, obviously. There are 360 degrees in a square or rectangle, 180 degrees in a triangle. Okay. Where, where do degrees come? Why do we divide it into 360 degrees? That's a valid question to ask. Uh, where does that actually come from? Um, because we could, just to be absolutely clear, we could divide a circle into 100 degrees. A degree is an arbitrary measurement. In the same way that, you know, in, in high school, you usually learn about radians as well. That's an arbitrary me measurement that we could redefine to something else if we wanted, as long as it's all consistent. So we could live in a universe where a circle or a rectangle, they have 100 degrees and a triangle has 50 degrees. That is a logically consistent system, okay? Um, so anyway, uh, why I bring this up is the 360 degrees thing actually goes back really into prehistory. Uh, Hipparchus, who I mentioned was working off of Babylonian priors, and of course all of the, the astronomers of this period and astrologers are using degrees already. That seems to be some knowledge that really goes to the verge of prehistory. That, that's, I guess, the, uh, the most maddening thing about it. This is one of these common memes that just goes way, way back and we're not quite sure. Now, there's a chance that the Babylonians invented 360 degrees as a convention. And we do know, now this is an interesting thing if you want to check it out, okay? Babylon, Babylonian mathematicians, they had uh, a, a sexagesimal number system. Their number system was based on 60 as a base number. Like our system, the metric system is ba based on 10. You know, everything is 10. Their number system is based on 60. Now 60 is a great number to have a base for your system. Actually 10 is a, an especially stupid number to have a, a base of a number system because it's not it's not even divisible. Like at least do 12. 12 is a, it would be great to have a number system based on because you can divide it by three and four. You don't have to have 0.33333 all the time. Um, but the Babylonian system was based on 60, which is divisible by freaking everything. <laughs> uh, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, you know, uh, is it divisible by eight? I don't think so. But, you know, anyway, all of this is to say that now the 60 number system, of course, and that also is related to 360. And sometimes uh, people uh, divided circles or, uh, you know, squares into 60 degrees sometimes in the past, but we still don't really know where that comes from, even though it's a very effective uh, mathematical system. Now, I should actually note, if you, want to, if you want to see something very interesting right now, okay, uh, at the end of this podcast episode, um, 
look up on YouTube. There's the, there are these mathematicians. Look up like old Babylonian math. And there's these um, mathematicians who actually will talk you through um, the Babylonian mathematical system. And also the fact that there are literally like Babylonians could do very complex trigonometry to very many decimal points. And many decimal points in a base 60 uh, base is actually much more impressive than many decimal points on a base 10 base. Um, but uh, they, they actually have a very advanced mathematical culture where people were doing advanced trigonometry and some other stuff. And we even don't fully understand how they did math. We have their results. They're clearly getting these magical results, but we don't know where the system comes from. Now, what I'm saying here is that we actually have, so in terms of mathematics, in terms of geometry, in terms of astrology and astronomy, our earliest civilizations out there are already at a ver very high level of complexity, okay? If I sat random people down in a, on an island, they would probably not develop advanced mathematics or stuff like this. So the most maddening thing about a lot of early history is the fact that there are many things that do not seem to actually develop, that people seem to have been getting from some earlier precursor civilization. Okay, we're not even sure. I mean, we even have things like the Zodiac, which I, I think there is some circumstantial evidence to think that the Babylonians created the Zodiac as we have it. But even that is not entirely sure. Okay, it may even date back even earlier. And the Zodiac is one of those memes, again, a cultural meme that doesn't have someone's name on it. Um, now, as, as a closing, uh, since again, we're, we're really just talking about the idea that before history, there were nearly certainly advanced, uh, I don't know, intellectual cultures. One thing that in particular that's close to me is in India, okay, there was a treatise written on linguistics, okay? And I think it's a little before the Common Era. It's not super ancient, but it's called the Ashtadhyayi, which in Sanskrit means the eight chapters, okay? Now, what do you care about linguistics, okay? What's the importance of this? Now, the interesting thing is, uh, this treatise is written on the Sanskrit language, the classical language of India, and it is the most complete grammatical description of all time of any language, okay? Even today, there is not a grammar of English made with all the professional things that we know now that is not as complete as this grammar. Uh, it not only contains all of the word roots and all, you know, how to derive all the morph morphology of the language, it meticulously details every phoneme, uh, how every single phoneme is pronounced in every situation, all of the allophonic distribution. I realize this is probably terminology that people don't know, but I will just say that this is the first ever written attestation of linguistics as a discipline. And it is already fully fledged. It took thousands and thousands of years for Western linguistics to even be able to hold a candle to the Ashtadhyayi. It is an utterly complete, I mean, they have every concept. They know what endocentric compounds are. Uh, they know everything about morphology that, you know, even modern generative linguists are like struggling to understand. And frankly, they had a much more solid theoretical foundation uh, than, you know, people nowadays. And I mentioned just, I mentioned this to say, especially when it comes to deductive disciplines, linguistics is a good example of a, a kind of a deductive discipline. And so is geometry, mathematics, uh, astronomy and astrology are good examples as well. Um, these are disciplines which you do not need giant experiments to know a lot about. And it is 
it should be our assumption that ancient cultures, even cultures without any level of complexity, knew about these kind of things and could remember them through mythology and other things. Um, there's actually another book that, um, let's say, there's, there's a book called The Memory Code, and this is written by a, a, a lady, um, what's her name, Lynn Kelly, I want to say. And she actually makes the point that a lot of early megalithic sites, she talks about Stonehenge and stuff like that, which, oh man, I haven't even, I meant to talk about Stonehenge in this episode, but I haven't even gotten to it, but I, I guess I'll get into it now. Um, she talks about the fact that a lot of these early sites were kinds of mnemonic devices um, which help people, you know, th there's this way of remembering things where people associate long strings of information with physical sites that they walk through. Uh, she actually mentions in her book, The Memory Code, uh, which I'm not actually a big fan of that book, but I think that the point it makes is pretty good. But she notes that, you know, ancient Greek orators, what they would do is they would walk through the city memorizing their speech and they would associate parts of their speech with different parts of the city. So that way, when they had to give their speech, they would just imagine walking through the city and all the things that remind them of the, the speech they were memorizing, right? And it's exactly the same thing with early architecture and stuff like this. So a lot of the cultural memes we have, including the mythology, they're very powerful mnemonic devices to keep, to keep often very complex information stored in people's brains that actually doesn't, it doesn't require writing at all. Writing is actually pretty cut, honestly. It's, it's a little, uh, it, it's, it's a very modern way of storing information, which is less fun anyway, but it also commits it to paper rather to your mind. Um, now I, I mentioned, I wanted to talk about Stonehenge, so I'll add, I, I've gone way I've gone, I thought I was not going to have enough stuff to talk about in this episode, but I, I've gone, I've gone way over. Um, let, let me make one more point on ancient astronomy, okay? Um, now, as I mentioned, there is this idea that the ancients had all this knowledge of uh, astronomy and astrology and stuff like that. And we actually know that that is true, okay? We know it's true based on a lot of archaeological sites, based on what's called archaeoastronomy. And that is the study of prehistoric sites and the interesting thing about them is that so many prehistoric sites Stonehenge is the memorable example but honestly nearly every megalithic site has some kind of synchronicity with the sky okay now just as a reminder for those who have studied Greek in Greek there's the word cosmos right we associate that with like oh the universe out there but when you take Greek you usually learn that it means the world or the earth but it actually is somewhere between both because ancient people, including early Greeks, they had this idea that the, the earth is a mirror of the sky or vice versa. Uh, really, the sky is the more important thing and it really is tied in with the earth. So early people would often build these megalithic sites. Stonehenge is a great example. The nice thing about Stonehenge, um, there was a paper way back in the day. It, it was back in 64, I think by a guy named uh, Hawkins. And it was called Stonehenge, a Neolithic computer. And what he talks about is the fact that Stonehenge, for those who don't know, okay, firstly, it is in sync with the solstices. So if you go to the middle of Stonehenge and you can look northeast, there is a rock called the Heelstone. And if you look northeast on the summer solstice, you will see the sunrise right over the Heelstone, exactly over it, okay? And analogously, and this is actually more important for the ancients, if you go there, if you go to the Heelstone on the winter solstice sunset, um, you will, and if you look through uh, Stonehenge, you will see the sun setting through 
you know, two of the, the, the middle rocks of uh, Stonehenge. It perfectly aligns. And, uh, you know, what uh, Hawkins talks about is the fact that Stonehenge also used to have these ditches around it. These, I, w- I want to say there were like 56 of them. And then, the, it, you know, why 56? Well, the reason is what you could do is you could put, uh, you can read his original paper. It's out there. Again, Stonehenge and Neolithic computer. Um, you could put uh, markers in those little inlets or whatever. And every year on the winter solstice, you move them. Okay, you would put three markers, you know, kind of forming a triangle, and you would move them uh, around clockwise. And if you move them every year, that would, in essence, calculate not just, okay, well, the sun is always going to appear in that situation, but it would also show you when you got eclipses. It would show you also every 19 years, which if you do like 56 divided by 3, it's 2.9 something, you know, it's basically, you know, it works out, but every 19 years, um, you would have the moon. You so you would walk from the heelstone to Stonehenge, and you would have the sun perfectly between those two stones. Uh, you know, come walking up on it, and you would also have the moon appearing directly over the sun. You know, and you would have it would be reflecting the the lower portion of it would be reflecting the sun, and they would both be there together, right? So Stonehenge is a great example of this site where it looks it looks like a bunch of stupid rocks. What's the point of that? But it's tied into astronomical phenomena in this way that requires a lot of preparing and a lot of knowledge about what's going on. And this is the norm. Like there's a there's a probably the Stonehenge of North America. There are actually many mound structures in North America that are similar. Um, but there's a place called Poverty Point, I think, in Louisiana. It's on the Mississippi River, which is this kind of the same thing. Um, it's a bunch of, I, I guess, ridges. Uh, it's hard to explain, but there are points where you can stand, and there are mounds around the ridges as well, and it will basically show you where the winter solstice or summer solstice and a bunch of equinox points and a bunch of other things, where they all will show up from this one place. Um and so that's just a great example of the fact that um, when, when you think of it this way, non-literate cultures, the default way of looking at the world is to look into the sky, right? So a lot of these people had a lot of knowledge of all the stuff going on. Did they know about the procession of the equinoxes? Maybe they could have. I, I don't doubt that. In fact, uh, it might be that, uh, you know, the Egyptians who survived for thousands of years with some degree of continuity... Uh, they probably eventually noticed this kind of stuff, um, even if, you know, the, the whole Hamlet story thing isn't so true. But the, the default state of human prehistory is knowledge of the sky. And there you have to store this information either by memory or mythology. And that actually can be a lot of the stories that we have. They, they store this information. Um, so anyway, I, I think that's about it. I feel like I've gone way on. Uh, today. I I guess I've been drinking caffeine. That might have caused it. Maybe I'll drink caffeine next time, but uh, hopefully that wasn't too disorganized. Again, you can go to notrelated.xyz, get a a podcast app that plays AUG files because I'm going to be using AUG files. Uh, Please donate at uh, donate.notrelated.xyz and you can leave a comment there. You can also send Bitcoin or Monero. The addresses are all there. Uh, Or you can use, you can just type in, you know, notrelated.xyz in your Bitcoin wallet and you can send Bitcoin. It'll bring up my address. So anyway, that's about it. If you have comments, go ahead and say them, and I guess I'll see you guys sometime soon. I plan on doing, uh, I want to do, I'll say two episodes this month. We'll do it.
we'll, we'll do it. So go ahead and make a monthly pledge, and I will see you later on.